I just titled this evening's talk, You Are Not What You Think. <laughs> and I'd like to begin the talk with a brief story told by Anthony DeMello, a wonderful spiritual teacher. He said, last year on Spanish television, I heard, of a, I heard a story about a gentleman who knocked on his son's door in the morning. Jaime, he says, wake up. Jaime answers, I don't want to get up, Papa. His father shouted, get up, you have to go to school. Jaime said, I don't want to go to school. Why not, asked his father. Three reasons, said Jaime. First, because it's so dull. Second, the kids tease me. And third, I hate school. And his father said, well, I'm going to give you three reasons why you must go to school. First, because it is your duty. Second, because you're 45 years old. <laughs> and third, because you're the headmaster. <laughs> wake up, wake up. So the whole of our process is waking up out of the, the delusion of our, you could say the delusion of our separate individuality. And when I say the delusion of your separate individuality, that in no way suggests that you don't exist. You exist in beautiful, living color. I was tempted tonight to read the, the first words of a Hafez poem where he says, in fact, I had it with me. He says... <clears throat> You are with the friend now, and I could say that about you, the friend of attention, of wakefulness. And you look so much stronger. You can stay that way and even bloom. Keep squeezing drops of the sun from your prayers, your practice, and from your companion's beautiful laughter. Keep squeezing drops of the sun from the most insignificant movements of your own holy body. He says, but you look so much stronger because you've been doing that. But then he warns, and this is a lot of what the talk will be about. He says, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you a moment of pleasure, inflation, special terrible, a moment of, of identity that may buy you, I'm, I'm adding that. Learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. <laughs> when we enter into what I call, and what many have called, <laughs> a case of mistaken identity, identifying with that stream of thinking that flows through our mind, taking thoughts about ourselves to be ourselves. When we, you could say, incarnate in our thoughts, we wander a long time confused. And what that overlooks what that obscures is that you look so much stronger. That the you that sits here in this room before you can think about yourself are absolutely amazing, indescribable, sufficient, mystical in a way, unexplainable. You could say it's simple, quiet, um, sufficient, 
clear, empty, heartful. We begin to have a taste. We wake up on the retreat and have a taste of what's sometimes described as the natural great peace and ease that is the natural peace and ease of our own minds. We wake up to that. We wake up to this moment where it's not so easy to define yourself. What can you say about yourself in this moment if you don't consult your memory? What would you say is your experience of yourself on present evidence when you're aware, awake? Anybody willing to say? Clear, bright, open, kind, simple, ever-changing. One with the trees. Yeah, where's the dividing line when we're just here? You can stay that way and even bloom. Keep placing your mind gently into your body. As Mark read, Ajahn Moon, right? Where's Mark? Ajahn Moon. Don't let your mind leave your body. As Emerson put it, who you are, shout so loudly, I can't hear what you say. (laughs) This is the first-hand version of yourself. The, The version of yourself, the experience of yourself that is made up of everything that you have experienced over the course of this retreat. But everything you have experienced over the course of this retreat up to this point, and we're still in the heart of it, even though it has seemed like a profound drama, hasn't it? (laughs) I think Mark alluded to this yesterday. On one hand, nothing has happened. (laughs) No, really, a lot has happened. But what what we've actually experienced... And what we get to see as we slow down, as we settle back into the moment, we see that our experience, our direct experience, is made up of essentially six things. There is seeing, knowing of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sensations, Five experiences through the five physical senses, the eyes, the ears, the nose, the tongue, the body. And then the the different, the fifth or the sixth sense called the mind and the different mind objects. Thoughts and feelings to our mind, like a sound is to the ear, smell is to the nose, taste is to the tongue. Six experiences repeating themselves over and over. And as we experience this unfolding, we see that it all happens. It all happens right here. That there has only ever been a right here that has been made up of experiences that appear and as we've been going over and over again, they appear and they vanish. And in real time, when we're here, we see that what we call the past is just a memory. It doesn't exist in truth. We recognize it as remembering, and it's so wonderful that I can remember. And we, what we call the future is another idea. It's what we call planning, worrying, expecting, hoping, projecting, 
But all that happens here. So what's happening here all the time is very simple. It's very simple. There's just these six things. But because of what of other elements of what happened, what happens after those six experiences, the way we relate or respond to those or react to those six experiences determines this, what's sometimes called proliferation or complication or elaboration on these six experiences. How we, without even knowing it, completely innocently move from this simple experience of sense experiences, sense experiences, which is really the only thing happening, how we move from that into this phantasmagorical world of our imagination. And especially the composite version of our imagination is the creation of an imagined you. The virtual version of you, a person who does not truly exist, at least the one that you imagine yourself to be. But that doesn't just happen in a vacuum. It happens based on certain tendencies of mind, certain habits of mind that allow us to fall into what the Buddha calls uh, wrong view, which essentially in common language is taking things personally. And here's how it happens. And it's something that we begin to check out and to notice as we go through the retreat. We've included... Uh, maybe Mark covered this already today, but we included the experience of um, the sensations of the body, the first foundation of mindfulness. And this is, a, of course, essential because our whole life happens dependent on the, this, what the Buddha called this fathom-long body. Our whole experience of the world depends on this body. In fact, if you just stayed in this body, you would come to the end of your search for what you need. There's a beautiful story in the Buddha's teaching where a, a deva, a so-called celestial being, maybe I told you this story, I'm starting to have a senior moment. <laughs> this deva comes to the, to the Buddha and says, you know, in such and such a life, I, I had this amazing power to move exceedingly fast. And in fact, I could, I could walk so fast that when someone would shoot an arrow, I could get to the, to the target before they could. And I had this strong desire to uh, try, try to see if I could walk to the end of the world. Where it, it somehow come to the end of the world where and it's sometimes described in the teachings where there's no, no more striving and you, where you feel that great sense of relief, where you're free, where you, you don't, you're not, there's, the fuel is gone from c- trying to keep going and going and going and going and going. You're finally at rest. But he walked for a hundred years and then he died. And then he came back and he came to the Buddha. He said, is it possible to walk to the end of the world or to... Um, to get to the end of the world by going. And the Buddha said, sorry, it's not possible to get to the end of the world by going. But only those who reach the end of the world become liberated. What do you do with that? But he didn't stop. He said, it's it's within this fathom-long body with its senses and perceptions that we experience the world, where the world lies. It's, this, it's within this fathom-long body, with its senses and perceptions, that the world is caused. It's the cause of the world, what makes the world. And you can see how you make the world of, in your mind again and again, taking birth into these scenarios 
says, within this fathom-long body lies the end of the world. And within this body lies the path leading to the end of the world. So it's here where everything happens, where we find the end of the world. But we don't stay here, usually, at least in our mind. Now, in a simple way, you could say, a thought arises. I'll, I'll be a little bit more technical as I go along, but in a simple way, a thought arises. Remember, as we've been talking about, thoughts are their own thinkers. They're selfless. They come unbidden. We've all said it in different ways. But that thought that arises and is impersonal, selfless, it has no, it has no agency. It really just pops up all on its own. If it's recognized as a thought, because remember, before our thought, we were just here, clear, open, natural state. That's why Noshul Ken says, rest in natural great peace, this exhausted mind, beaten helpless by this neurotic pattern, by neurotic thought. Rest in natural great peace. So if we just rest here, great. Just open. You, mostly all you can say is, I'm awake or I'm aware. And that's why we keep saying, wake up to where you are. Life is a lot less complicated here. As you know, have you noticed? I don't mean here at Spirit Rock. <laughs> that too. But we don't stay there. That thought arises. If it's recognized, it's inseparable from that, from the awareness that recognizes it. It's just, a, it's just part of the, the in, in some way, amazing flow of our consciousness display. And it's a miracle that we can think that these little bubbles, these little clouds, they can appear like little electrical charges. And they tend to have a certain flavor to them. Wow, how amazing. Tibetans have this word, emaho, where they're constantly saying, emaho, how amazing. So if a thought is noticed, no problem. But if that thought goes unnoticed, it spreads out. Because thoughts, without the arising of mindfulness, thoughts, by their nature, are bent toward creating an alternative or fake news. an alternative universe. We know a little bit about that now, don't we? <laughs> but others in the, in the world of politics have nothing on us. We are masters at fake news. And it's innocent. And if that thought goes unnoticed and spreads out into ordinary thinking, a Tibetan teacher named Dujan Rinpoche calls that the chain of delusion. Because we fall into that case of, of incarnating in those thoughts, taking those thoughts of ourselves and the world to be the world or our thoughts. Because at the heart and at the center of most of our narratives, there is a central character that somehow reflects back to this unique, individual, creative, spectacular, unexplainable incarnation that you are that even allows you to know that about the nature of thoughts. Never denying your individuality. If you think of the, of the Buddha, totally himself, but yet he saw that what made up what he th- called, what we can conventionally call ourselves, was made up of all of these non-personal elements. All of us made up of non-personal elements. Start so simply with the practice that we've been doing of the elements, earth, air, fire, water, an expression of life. Think that's so personal? And then there's the 
the stream, our mind, our so-called mind stream, our stream of consciousness, filled with uh, the the nuances and flavors of our cultures, or or uh, families of origin, our teachers, our schools. There is not one element in this individuality that exists completely independent of all those things have, that have brought it to be. Knowing this, knowing that we don't exist independently, we ideally, with that kind of wisdom, we should simply bow in mercy toward our inherent vulnerability. How we were just being moved, how we were born through forces completely out of our own control. And how we were moved by circumstances, how the winds blow through our lives. And how, how insecure that the, our individuality is. So we can see even our individuality, even though we're so here, we can see that we're, that we, our bodies and our experience is so insecure. How much more so insecure than the version of ourselves that plays through our mind? The Buddha said this view of self, identity, ego, he called it sakaya ditti, self-view. And as a view, it's just a view. It's not self. It's not real, in other words. It has no substantiality. Yet, when it goes unrecognized, spreads out into ordinary thinking, we become, because of what's called wrong view, we become identified with that version of ourselves. And it's usually, as my friend Kate says, it's usually some version of, I suck. (laughs) And... And the version, it's so inherently insecure. I was thinking about, about Leela Kate just now, and she, she, we were joking about how, how the version of ourselves that plays on Facebook, all the wonderful things we're doing, and then the version of ourselves on the Google search, why am I so depressed? Why am I, what can I, how can I take, what can I buy to make this feel better? always in conflict, trying to figure things out and make it all right. All very innocent. All an, an innocent attempt to, to satisfy, to defend, to protect, to build up, to solidify something that is just like, like air. It has an inherent insecurity built into it. No wonder we are unhappy and shaky. But we don't, we don't just let ourselves ordinarily feel that, feel that sense of, of, of quivering, of fragility, which is inherent in our nature. And if we did, we would, we would that, that, as you may experience on the retreat, that fragility melts into the openness of, of compassion and love and stillness. And we discover that we don't have to lift out of this moment to, to find that relief. We, the relief, the cure, as Rumi puts it, the cure for pain is in the pain. As Mark beautifully read the Hafez poem, don't surrender your loneliness so quickly, let it cut more deep. It tenderizes our heart. It's another way of saying it opens our mind to a, a state of non-contentiousness, non-reactiveness. a a great openness, that natural clarity. Isn't there a vivid clarity when you're not looking ahead and not looking back? That is completely unconstructed, unconditional. This is awareness, natural. But we don't stay there. And Bonnie spoke beautifully about all the different ways that we that we incarnate into this virtual version of ourselves, the fake news. And he, she went into some degree the, the word mana, one of the floods of conceit. Mana is the other, 
the other translation for mana besides conceit is the comparing mind, as that mind that puts ourselves above, below, equal to others. And that that's just an innocent attempt to try to secure, trying to be okay, trying to find relief. But it's, uh, it's hopeless. It's hopeless and it exhausts us. And it knows, it knows no... Um, it knows no bounds, has no shame. Here's one attempt. This is somebody that became very identified with their, their um, um, music. So we can take anything and build an identity around it. Listen to this one. This is uh, from, this is about the British musical group, The Planets who introduced a 60-second piece of complete silence on its latest album. And when they did this, the representatives of the estate of the composer, John Cage, who wrote 4 minutes 33 seconds, that's the name of a song, 273 seconds of silence, threatened to sue the group (laughs) for ripping Cage off but failed, said the group, to specify which 60 of the 273 seconds it thought had been pilfered. Said Mike Bat of the Planets, mine is a much better silent piece. I am able to say in one minute what took Cage four minutes and 33 seconds. And Bonnie spoke so beautifully about the, um, the, the way that we're, that we're measuring. And I promised her to share a poem, which I'll share with you right now, that really speaks to this tendency to measure, which really is measuring something that is not measurable. You are not measurable. What can, how could you measure yourself in real time without some kind of abstract view of how you should be, could be, would be? What do you say about yourself? Are you comparable? Of course not. I have to digress a little bit. Whenever I get to this point where I, I look and sense the incomparability of each person. I remember when I was really first, (laughs) it's kind of, I was past 50, but I was really struck by the, you know, the basic suchness of each person, you know, just the amazingness. And it was because of the, the transmission I got from my daughter, Molly, who I would watch day in and day out as she emerged, you know, at age one, two, three, and I, was, I would just marvel at what I called her molliness. You know, just perfectly herself, of course, as selfless as all beings in that she's made up of all these circumstances and that are beginningless and vulnerable and yet has, expresses a certain molliness, a certain essence as each of you do, given that no one... No one's, cause, no one's causes and conditions were exactly the same. So each of us is such a unique creative expression of life. And I saw Molly in her perfect molliness, and I would take delight in her molliness. And then I think it was age four. I noticed her one day at the mirror, pulling on her little curlicues, her curly hair, pulling on her hair, trying to straighten it, just so happened that she went to nursery school and there were two little straight, blonde-haired little girls and there was the birth of the comparing mind. And all of a sudden she thought she should be somebody other than the way she is. And so we, you see that the formation of identity is an inevitable thing. All these different views. But the capacity of a meditator to see that, ah, That's just a comparing mind. That describes somebody that doesn't exist. That's just a measured version. And here's what 
Rumi had to say about that. He said, enough already. (laughs) He didn't say that. I said that. (laughs) It's very Yiddish. (laughs) He said, don't run around this world looking for a hole to hide in. There are wild beasts in every cave. If you live with mice, the cat claws will find you. The only real rests comes when you're alone with God or the divine. Live in the nowhere where you came from. Even though you have an address here, you have eyes that see from that nowhere. And you have eyes that judge distances, how high, how low. You own two shops and you keep running back and forth. Try to close the one, and I would just change it. Try to notice the one that's a fearful trap, always getting smaller. Checkmate this, checkmate that. Keep open the shop where you're not selling fish hooks anymore, where you're the free swimming fish. The moment you make that shift from being caught in believing that a comparing thought is who you are, or that you are reducible to a comparing thought. The moment you make a shift from being caught in that to noticing it, to relating to it instead of from it, you are, in a sense, free. You have, you've reached the, the promised land. That's a moment of liberation. That's a moment of returning, you could say, home, which is how Mark started the retreat. This is a process of coming home, like... Derek Walcott, who says, come back to the str- meet the stranger, love again, the stranger who has loved you all your life, whom you've ignored for another, who knows you by heart. Take down the love letters from the bookshelf, the photographs, the angry notes, you know, all those little versions of ourselves. Peel your own image from the mirror, one that's comparable. Sit and feast on your life. And that's a lot of what we do here is we feast on our life. We sink in to this ever-presentness of our nature. And we see that the version of our pl- ourselves that plays through our mind is just a story. A story of somebody who comes from the past. Again, no past. Who passes through the present on our way to the future where happiness is to be found, we're anxious and worried about whether the future will make us happy, and it describes somebody that has to get somewhere to be okay. That person does not exist. That's a version of you that is um, just what we call ego. That always has a conflict to be solved. So we shift from being carried along by that version You know, our identity, when it's tethered to time, it's always running out. No wonder you're anxious. And our body is always getting old if you identify too much with that. That makes us anxious. And a lot of our stories that play through our mind are body image or age. Age is a huge one that uh, keeps us in that virtual version. And so we, we try to we try to make that shift from, from being caught in that to just knowing, wow, look at the way I create myself in each moment. That that view of myself is not myself. And then in the process of doing that, as many people have when they see the way our mind is always trying to get on to the next thing, we, they, they start to develop a sense of humor as Larry Miller did where he shares his views on aging. Do you realize the only time in our lives when we like to get old is when we're kids? If you're less than 10 years old, you're so excited about aging that you think in fractions. (laughs) How old are you? I'm four and a half. You're never 36 and a half. (laughs) You're four and a half going on five. That's the key. You get into your teens, now they can't hold you back. You jump to the next number or a few ahead. How old are you? I'm going to be 16. You could be 13, but hey, you're going to be 16. And then the greatest day of your life, you become 21. Bava. 
Even the words sound like a ceremony. You become 21, yes. But then you turn 30. Ooh, what happened there makes you sound like bad milk. He turned. We had to throw him out. There's no fun now. You're just a sour dumpling. What's wrong? What's changed? You become 21, you turn 30, then you're pushing 40. Whoa, put on the brakes. It's all slipping away before you know it. You reach 50 and your dreams are gone. But wait, you make it to 60. (laughs) You didn't think you would. You become 21, turn 30, push 40, reach 50, make it to 60. You built up so much speed that you hit 70. (laughs) After that, it's a day-by-day thing. You hit Wednesday. You get into your 80s and every day is a complete, <laughs> complete cycle. You hit lunch, turn 4.30, reach bedtime. It doesn't end there. Into your 90s, you start going backwards. I was just 92. Then a strange thing happens. If you make it over 100, you become a little kid again. I'm 100 and a half. May we all make it to 100 and a half. So that identity with the body, which is always getting old, then that story in our mind, and we forget that our, our natural state, not to deny the aging of the body, of course we, we open to that. That's part of the dukkha of, of our individuality, of life. But that misses sometimes the, the point that's arrived at in every moment, that we are, you could say, timelessly or unconditionally aware. We miss that, that in us that has no age, that has no birth, that has no death, has no height, no depth, no color, no shape, no inside, no outside, free from the very beginning, beginningless. How amazing. Hakuin Zenji, oh, how sad that people ignore the near and search for the truth afar. You don't, or who was it, um, Kabir? Oh, how I laugh when I hear that the fish in the water is thirsty. You don't understand that what's most alive lives inside your own house, so you walk from one holy city to the next with a confused look. So you've given yourself a huge gift as half of our practice is reclaiming as Thich Nhat Hanh, you are the richest person on earth who've been going around begging for a living. You're reclaiming your heritage. The second part of our practice is to see the creative, the inevitable, the, the but imaginary versions of ourselves that play in our mind. The ones that's, that sometimes approximate reality because our story that plays, it has to do with our past and our families, our race, our religion, our, our gender, our orientation. Our stories are so rich and amazing. So that it, they, they are conditioned by our circumstances. But they can never capture this. And they are ephemeral, as we've been saying over and over. They appear and they disappear. So what age are you? in this moment, if you don't consult your memory. Where is the past that you came from? Where's the future that you're going to? Don't overlook this, as all the teachings, don't overlook this natural peace. Just getting, I can't resist since I'm in this neighborhood of, of that, that um, bother becoming that imaginary version that's always measuring or, or becoming or waiting for what's next. George Carlin recognized that tendency to be always aiming for the next. And so he, in his attempt to get us to come back to 
the simple reality. Uh, wrote a, a little passage that I think can, uh, we can get a little kick out of anyway. He says, The most unfair thing about life is the way it ends. I mean, life is tough. It takes up a lot of your time. <laughs> what do you get at the end of it? A death. What's that, a bonus? I think the life cycle's all backwards. You should die first. That's what we're doing. Get it out of the way. But then, the way he puts it, then you live in an old age home. You get kicked out when you're too young. You get a gold watch. You go to work. You work 40 years until you're young enough to enjoy your retirement. (laughs) You do drugs, alcohol. (laughs) You party. You get ready for high school. You go to grade school. You become a kid. You play. You have no responsibilities. You become a little baby. You go back into the womb. You spend your last nine months floating in spa-like conditions. (laughs) Central heating, room service on tap. (laughs) And you finish off as an orgasm. (laughs) (laughs) So getting back to this this wakefulness, it has, as Bonnie shared with you, it has a quality of openness when we're aware. It has the nature of clarity. It just knows or reflects what's presenting itself. And it may have all these beautiful qualities or beautiful nature of being unconditional, deathless, etc., but it, it is also, its expression is, uh, is intelligence and responsiveness. So all the juicy qualities of heart and mind flow from, or expressions are just synonymous with being awake and aware. And so the half of our practice is noticing how our mind works and moving in that inevitable direction, I think is really expressed beautifully by this small teaching from a, a teacher named Srinis Gadatta about true awareness. He says, true awareness is, is pure noticing without the least attempt to do anything about the event being noticed. Your thoughts, feelings, words, and actions may also be part of the event. You notice all, unconcerned in the full light of clarity and understanding. You understand precisely what's going on because it does not affect you. It may seem to be an attitude of cold aloofness, but it's not really so. Once you are in it, you will find that you love what you see whatever may be its nature, this choiceless love is the touchstone of awareness. If it's not there, you are merely interested for some personal reasons. In other words, you're caught in one of the poisons. You're trying to make something happen. So the quality of mindful attention helps purify or soften that tendency to try to make something happen and replaces it with a a wonder. And then the clarity about seeing how everything that arises passes away. And whatever arises and passes away cannot be said to be reliable, satisfactory. And of course, whatever arises and passes away is not me or mine. Whatever arises and changes is empty of self. It is selflessness expressed in time. And then we know that for ourselves. As we become a little bit more meticulous, and I don't really have time to go into this so much, but you'll see the whole constituent 
stream of experiences that lead to that sense of me that exists independently apart everything. That how we fall into delusion. Just a very simple version is there's a a sight. We'll we'll use the the Vipassana romance that Bonnie mentioned. There's a sight. You see someone. So that someone is a, it's like a reflection that uh, and especially if we've fallen into wrong view already and we're used to the idea of uh, we say, I'm seeing. Really, it's just seeing in, a, in color, shape, form. But that moment of seeing happens. That moment of seeing happens, and that person, as every experience does, it comes, that person is accompanied with, depending on my conditioning, is accompanied with a, a flavor. They come with a flavor of, it, it feels pleasant to look at them, unpleasant or neither pleasant or unpleasant. And when it's pleasant, there is an instantaneous, especially if there's not a lot of mindfulness, a lot of clarity in the mind, that, that pleasantness is followed by liking. It's not, the pleasantness is just pleasant. Oh, pleasant. Pleasant person. And then there's liking. And if the liking goes unnoticed, it's followed by wanting. It's just the, the way the law works. Meanwhile, that whole little cycle of liking and wanting produces a little internal pressure, tension. And that tension has to go somewhere. And it tends to go into, because we start to feel a little bit unsettled, then there's this need to get settled. And so that pressure then extends into the world of fantasy. And of course, within a minute, you have married that person, (laughs) you've traveled the world, you've gotten divorced, but... (laughs) (laughs) Remember, nothing has happened, <laughs> but, we have, but we have created just in the span of an instant, just because of a reaction to that simple sense experience, we have entered into the world of fake news, of our imagination. And to the degree that I've actually believed that that's, you know, that I'm the person who has to have that person in order to be happy, you know, which is, we've gone through a lot, I'm literally bound into that lifetime. And then I wander. I wander and wander. And then I have that relationship and I lose that relationship, whatever it is that happens. And it, it is by its nature unsatisfactory. But there's a certain point that I, I wake up and realize, wow, I was just taken, you know, especially when it comes to something that's just going on in our mind, I just woke up from that. I was just bound into that lifetime. And, I, and in fact, I carried one of those little proliferations for an entire three-month retreat. In fact, t- for two different people on a three-month retreat. <laughs> one, of the per- one of the people became a friend. The other one had, was completely oblivious to me, didn't give me the time of day. And I had just built this whole thing. And, and in fact... I got so, it was so intense that I actually thought I was interrupting their, their practice because I was just, you know, caught up in that. That's a lifetime that I lived, a lifetime of imagination. And we are born again and again into these, these mind streams. And so, of course, the moment you wake up out of it or can make that shift from being caught in it to noticing it, whew, what a relief to be able to See that thought of another is not another. A thought of your mother is not your mother, as our teacher Munindraji used to say. That it's just a thought. Or desire is desire. Aversion is aversion. Not me, not mine, not self. Just a change in condition, like weather. Freedom. So I, I've run out of time, but I, just from what I've said in the last few minutes, I want to want to end with the words, the song of awakening, maybe hopefully to inspire you a little bit, the song of awakening that the Buddha uttered after he had been carried along by um, maybe more literally many lifetimes, but we go through many lifetimes in our mind. So this is, it's often true that someone who awakens just spontaneously share a song of realization. This was his. It says, through many births, in the wandering on, I ran 
seeking but not finding the maker of this house. O house builder, you've been seen now. You shall not build a house again. Your rafters are broken, which is all the defilements, all that misperception. Your ridgepole destroyed, ignorance. My mind gone to the unconditioned, to cravings, that craving for becomings, craving cessation, letting go, it has come. So may we all come to the, the end of our search and realize that, as Gendon Rinpoche said, don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who's already resting quietly at home in front of your own fireplace. Nothing to do about what's happening, nothing to undo. Everything is changing. Just rest, rest, rest. Be still. You can remain as you are, just quiet for a moment. May all beings be able to recognize fake news when they hear it. <laughs> Thank you so much for your attention. Really fun to speak with you. and Thank you for your practice. And enjoy your meal and your evening. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.